some people tend to see a sense of community as socialism, um, yeah. which it certainly is not. It's it's a society. We live in a yeah. society. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that that's very unfortunate. And I, unfortunately, I think it's going to get worse. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. everybody this is another episode of the podcast walk talk listen and as usual i'm really you know so happy with today's guest and we have two and they will introduce themselves hi there my name is katrina van huss i'm the ceo of turnkey we're a uh, for-profit consultancy that serves the nonprofit sector in helping to raise money and build sustainable revenue and I'm Otis Fulton. I'm a psychologist. I'm the vice president for psychological strategy at Turnkey. And I'm also Katrina's husband. So if she talks over me, don't be surprised because <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> so th- th- tell us a little bit about the company, how it started. And with that, also, maybe you have to tell about how you met because uh, I, that might be <laughs> an important component of this company, right? It is actually important and they are interwoven. So I started the company 32 years ago. And I started it purely in a burst of entrepreneurialism. I didn't really care what I was doing. And I, I found a thing that I thought would be good to do. And it was uh, logo imprinted products. So I started the company and almost immediately a um, local nonprofit person decided that she hated all her vendors and that she wanted to build a new one. And she picked me to build the new one. And so she put me through my paces. I, um, she asked before she would give us significant business if I would become first a participant and then a team captain and then a committee member. And then ultimately I chaired my local Relay for Life. And that's how I really learned the industry was through the demands of this particular client. Um, that was a wonderful relationship. I was with Relay for Life through their uh, amazing increase in revenue. And um, then things changed when fundraising became an online activity because suddenly a new sort of business intelligence was created. So I could, one of the programs that we uh, provided was that we provided recognition products to successful fundraisers. And so we'd been doing that for years, but without the benefit of really good data. So once we could see the data and we could see the behavior of the fundraisers in regard to their fundraising, and we could compare that to their behavior in regard to their acceptance or desire for a gift, we learned something really important. And it was this, the more valuable and better we gave as a gift, mm-hmm the less productive the fundraiser would be in the following year. And that very counterintuitive Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge led me down the path of studying more and trying to understand. Now, this I did with the benefit of a biology and a journalism degree. So that was problematic. You know, I'm sort Mm -hmm. of floundering around in the dark. And um, coincidentally, you know, about uh, probably five, seven years after that transition started, 
and I began to like try and figure this thing out. Um, I met Otis Mm -hmm. coincidentally, or maybe not met him on match.com. So, Mm -hmm. okay. I was there on purpose and, um, he happened to be a social psychologist. And so uh, I'll let you pick up the thread from there. Well, we went to lunch uh, the first time and she told me what she did. And I, I asked the leading question that got me in deep and wound up getting me married. Well, you know why that works so well, don't you? And she said, no, I have no idea why that works. And then I turned into Ron Burgundy. I said, well, let me tell you why it works so well. I have many leather bound books on this subject. And uh, so we've never stopped talking. Well, we've had few incidents here and there that we stopped talking, but, but uh, pretty much never stopped talking, much to the chagrin of our dinner companions. Yes, yes. So the, the thing Otis was questioning me about was, um, you know, do you know why peer-to-peer fundraising works so well? What's the mechanism that drives people to ask others for money? And what's the mechanism that, that gets people to say yes? And so, you know, from our first meeting, we truly, literally have been talking about it incessantly and studying it even to the point of uh, Otis is finishing up his PhD and his uh, dissertation is. Uh, it's actually on uh, the effect of moral identity on, uh, on Facebook fundraising. Uh, I think Facebook mm. fundraising is the, uh, the, the big new terrain and uh, peer-to-peer fundraising. I think it's very socially uh, rewarding and it provides in spades uh, the rewarding experience that people have gotten just from doing uh, traditional peer-to-peer fundraising. It's kind of on steroids. Hmm. So his hypothesis, and I think it's correct, is that, and I'll paraphrase here, and you're, it would make your committee break out in hives. Um, what we think is that the impact of Facebook uh, in terms of giving recognition hmm. is enough to make more than one kind of person behave the same way. Like people who are hmm. very loosely tied to the nonprofit behave on Facebook differently as if they are more aligned because of the public exposure that Facebook provides. Right. We know that people behave more pro-socially in public than they do in private. Mm-hmm. And we just think that, well, my hypothesis is that Facebook is such a, such a salient to use a psychologist's word, um, uh, source of social recognition that, uh, that everyone is rewarded by doing this Facebook fundraising in, in a myriad of ways. And they've, been very clever in how they've designed it uh, in order to make that so. Hmm. I have two questions about that. And it's one is, um, so, you know, you, you're talking about Facebook. So is that your hypothesis, is that true for all social media? And second, uh, is it also true for the younger generation? So I'll take the first shot at that. Um, Facebook is the only platform right now that really has built out functionality in terms of uh, fundraising, peer-to-peer fundraising. So it's really hard to study the others. Um, Instagram has some functionality, but it's, I would just say it's not ready to study yet. And TikTok is also coming along with at least a donate button, but not so much peer-to-peer functionality. So Mm -hmm. um, my guess is that the same will be true. Mm -hmm. My guess is also that it will be true of younger generations as well. Okay. Otis? No, I I, I completely agree. I, I don't think it's anything specific about Facebook. I just think that people go to Facebook to become social. And um, we know that people, uh, uh, again, they are behave more pro-socially in more public settings. And so it right now is the most public public setting uh, that's available right now. But I think that 
other platforms are going to be um, are going to be copying this kind of a, uh, a of an approach, and I think it's going to be to uh, to their great benefit. Yeah. Right. The difference between Facebook and a traditional platform is a mm -hmm. traditional platform is fundraising first. Facebook is community first, and community is going to win. So mm -hmm. until those other traditional platforms build in a better community function, and even if they do, they simply don't have the audience that mm -hmm. Facebook does. Great. Um, so Otis, so you, you did your PhD on that. Is, is there a book published or a report where people can find this or should they just go to the website of the company? No, I'm, I'm actually just completing that, that research right now, okay. uh, Maurice. But we, we do have a 2017 book, um, Dollar Dash, The Behavioral Economics of Peer-to-Peer -peer Fundraising that we wrote. Uh, if you're Russian, it's also available in Russian. Uh, we, we, a couple of years ago, it was, uh, oh. it, it was translated. It, it's called 100 Friends. Because dollar dash didn't make any sense in Russian, uh, but they do have a saying: "I don't have a hundred rubles, but I have a hundred friends." So we didn't come up with that. Our <laughs> Russian counterparts came up with that. Our much more sophisticated and elegant. Exactly, one hundred friends came up with that. <laughs> right. Okay, we'll make sure uh, folks can find it in the in the notes of the podcast. Hey, our, our two companies, you know, um, met each other because of, of the Crop Hunger Walk. I, I think it was an important mm -hmm. uh, aspect of our relationship, right? Yes. And, um, well, I started many years ago my 100-mile walk um, to kind of, you know, ask attention for the Crop Hunger Walk, volunteers and the work that they do, and because I was really amazed by it. Um, so, yeah, so I've been walking for the last... Uh, almost 10 years now, 100 mile in a week to raise awareness for hunger and, uh, you know, poverty and, and, and other issues. If you would be asked to walk 100 mile in a week, what would drive you to, to walk that 100, uh, 100 miles? The only thing that would get me to walk 100 miles would be mission. That's it. There, there's no amount of um, incentive that could do that, you know, I mean, it would have to be alignment with the mission. I, th I, th I think that you really, you know, uh, there, there's been a lot of talk in the last five years about personas in the industry. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think personas just scratch the surface. You really have to understand something about an individual's identity. Um, so my, uh, I'm a big fan of the marketing guru, Seth Godin, and he said, people like us do things like this. So if you can convince people that people like us walk 100 miles, for this mission, mm -hmm. then then you've got it made. Uh, but uh, you have to really understand something about a person's identity in order to hone in on that. Something like uh, personas are much too uh, much too vague, general of a, a way to look at people. For the two of you, is it, maybe it's the same, maybe it's separate. Why do you wake up in the morning? You know, what's, what's yes, you said mission, but can you a little bit elaborate on that? Sure. Well, I'll use an example. It wasn't 100 miles, but it sure felt like it. Mm -hmm. um, recently, my church engaged with um, an elderly woman in poor health, and our, our, the thing we decided to do was to help her move from a, a four-bedroom home, big home, into a thousand-square-foot apartment. And she was a hoarder. She is a hoarder. And so that project was, uh, it looked a hundred miles long when we started. And, you know, when you think about doing a thing like that, the only reason that makes sense is that it is a reflection of who you are. You know, I am a person who helps people in me in need, mm -hmm. and that's the only thing that made it achievable 
or attractive or fulfilling. And the woman, as the group of us were helping her, she kept asking, why? Why are you doing this? You know, why, what, what is it that, that made me so fortunate as to, as to have you help me? And um, the answer is, it's not about you. It's about me. You know, I'm fulfilling my needs right now, even and and helping you as a byproduct. That sounds very mercenary, um, but that's just the real truth of it. You know, if it weren't mm-hmm. fulfilling for me, I wouldn't be there. But it is fulfilling for me, and I need to do this. I need to demonstrate that this is who I am, both to myself and to the outside world. Hmm. Otis, if well, people like Katrina do things like help porters. Um, so uh, that's exactly. I consider him home support. <laughs> yes, I was. I was a home chef. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I really do. I, I think that she kind of restated what I said in a very articulate way. Um, it is about all about people's identities. And um, uh, also, you know, when you, when you talk about mission, is an organization's mission like your organization, Maurice, um, is that going to help me fulfill something that I want to do? Is it going to help me feed the hungry? Um, I'm not going to uh, become a supporter of your organization just to help you. I'm going to become a supporter of your organization so that I feel that I can accomplish something myself. So to the extent that organizations are able to pass on that sense of uh, you're going to be able to accomplish something that's important to you in the world. They're going to be more successful. You know, while while listening to you, um, it's yeah. I may, may I would like to share that that when I walk uh, either you know in person or virtually with people and talk about, you know, why I walk a hundred miles. Very often we start talking about what drives you, uh, spirituality, religion. Uh, and then very quickly we talk about the next generation and some of my co-walkers, if that's a word, um, you know, think, you know, the next generation approaches is different, the younger generation. Uh, and, and then, you know, we talk about, yes, yes but they are still spiritual, but they are, uh, not religious anymore. Others say, well, they are still religious. You know, they only look differently at the institutionalization of religion. So what is your opinion about that? What do you see in, in uh, you know, in the work that you do in, in relation to uh, the younger generation and religion and spirituality? Yeah. Let me do it. Sure. Go ahead. Oh, well, you know, Katrina said the, the key word a little mm-hmm. while ago, community. And and I think that uh, the uh, the younger generation doesn't find the sense of community in traditional religious structures like uh, like older folks have, and uh, I think that uh, it's not about them. It's just about uh, the uh, the inability right now of traditional religious organizations to provide that sense of community. I think that that that's what uh, people are hungry for, and I think to the extent that. Uh, these religious organizations are able to rekindle that sense of community, you'll find younger people coming back. Um, So Otis and I have an interesting spiritual life. Otis is a Buddhist Mm -hmm. and I'm a Christian Presbyterian. And um, we have tremendous overlap in our spirituality because we both feel connected to humanity and and that we have an obligation to, to do for humanity. Um, for my kids, um, you know, I have stories with him. We married seven years ago. I have no kids stories for him, but my kids stories include that, uh, you know, my two sons just, I cannot get them interested in coming to church. 
unless there's someone to serve. And for example, when we house um, homeless folks in our church, they'll come and serve, but they don't want to show up just for worship, right? So -hmm. it's very different. Um, I consider that, again, to go all mercenary, that will be what gets my kids back in church is is a structured opportunity to serve that's fulfilling to them. And and I feel like that's their path uh, back to religion. And sadly, Katrina is a better Buddhist than I am. So she's not only a better Christian than I am, but she's also a better Buddhist than I am. So it's really frustrating. I got no beads. You you don't have a mala, but everything else is okay. You know, what are some of the things that you worry about at the moment? Um, for me, it's polarization of the country, you know, the divisiveness in the country. Um, as an example, um, I responded to a Facebook post by a media outlet and this question was simple and straightforward. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had no idea this would happen. Uh, the question was, um, if, if, if you're outside, will you still be wearing a mask? And I responded, uh, well, I'm fully vaccinated, but if it would make someone near me more comfortable, comfortable, I'd be happy to. And I've never, um, I've never had such a reaction on Facebook. I, mm-hmm. Like we keep watching it. We're going to write mm-hmm. about it this week. I think as of right now, we've got like almost 200 comments right. and wow. 400 reactions to that simple statement on my part. And what they're reacting to, it's about mm-hmm. three to one negative to positive. Right. And the negative is, um, well, what was the one about the deer urine? How about no. if I ask you to uh, spray deer urine on, on you before you leave the house too? Would you do that to make me feel more comfortable? Yeah. So it was really a, a weird reaction mm-hmm. and to an expression of courtesy to mm-hmm. my community. And, and I think that uh, for whatever reason, you know, we've sort of forgotten that we live in a community, we live in a society mm-hmm. and that, that requires certain things to make a society work. And, and there seems to be a problem there. So we'll be writing about it this week. That worries me. That worries me. It's almost like, you know, I feel like the next thing is if I say I love Dobermans or I love, you know, German shepherds that somebody's going to, you know, let loose because it's just so weird what is causing people to react so strongly and negatively now. It's it's hard to understand. That worries me. How about you? Oh, no, I, I think exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think it's just so unfortunate that people see, uh, tend to see a sense of some people tend to see a sense of community as socialism, um, which it certainly is not. It's, it's a society. We live in a society. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I I think that that's very unfortunate. And unfortunately I think it's going to get worse. Yeah. And what's so ironic to me is that, you know, a sense of community, a sense of caring for one's neighbor, those are the red letter words, right? And most of the people who are responding so mm-hmm. vehemently and negatively are Christian. Hmm. It's hard to understand. Yeah. When, when we were in Russia uh, promoting the um, launch a couple of years ago of uh, 100 Friends, we saw just how damaged that society was mm-hmm. by uh, similar things. It, you know, ironically, the communist regime damaged the social fabric to such an extent that it's very difficult for nonprofits to even work in Russia. Yeah, because a sense of community um, during the Soviet era, you know, the government government was to provide all. And mm-hmm. it, uh, if you 
suggested that people needed help, that meant the government was not providing all and you were criticizing the government. So it's a different dynamic, but the yes. end result was yep. the same. The society, mm. the fabric of it was damaged and ours is, ours is damaged now. Mm. So are, you, are there only worries for you or are you still have hopes as well? No. I, I have many hopes. Here's my hope. Here's my okay. biggest hope. And I keep saying it in different ways, hoping that one day Otis will lean in and go, yes, we're going to do it. Here's my hope. You mm -hmm. know, um, we learned to overcome our fear of heights because we wanted to. We, we walk around in tall buildings. We look out windows from thousands of feet in the air. We go up in airplanes. Mm -hmm. We bungee jump. Right. So we overcame this natural DNA installed fear of heights. And I believe that with uh, with education and with a more sophisticated understanding of human beings, we can also overcome our fear of other. We can mm -hmm. understand in group out group. And I think we can we can become much more sophisticated as a society to understand when these emotions are happening, where they come from mm -hmm. and that we can control them. And Otis thinks that is uh, wishful thinking <laughs> uh, at best, because just because you know, I that's why I love Katrina. But but uh, just so many uh, people's motivations are so so largely unconscious, hmm. and uh, I think that this idea that you can make all these things conscious is just, just doesn't. top three: FOMO. Fear of other, and I'll give you one more. If we could do those three, okay, we could we could make a lot okay. of difference okay. in the world. I, I agree. If we could do that, we'd make a lot of difference in the world. We can agree <laughs> on that. Or or we undertake a massive in-grouping project, right? So to get people feel like they're part of a different in-group. So instead of the, you know, um, proud boy in-group, I'm suddenly part of the um, I grow mushrooms at home in group. You know, it doesn't matter as long as we can move them into something different. Right. Do you want to explain in group, out group? Well, no, but you might you might explain it through the, uh, the the little experiment that was done with the dog and the Trump supporters. That oh, was, yeah, that, that was, was fascinating. Good. Go ahead and you can do that. Um, what kind of dog was it? It was the shaggy golden retriever. So yes. a uh, young person went to a Trump rally in a T-shirt that clearly identified her as both a Democrat and a liberal. I forget what it said. Uh, and she had a Labrador retriever with her. And the people at the rally responded to her in an incredibly positive way mm. because they went from being in group, out group, you know, one group being Trump supporters, her being a very small group of, of non-Trump supporters to we all love dogs mm. and they were fine. Everybody was fine. So that's what I mean by like, let's end group on something else. And sometimes Otis and I play a game and when we're in crowds, um, okay, it's me, I play a game. And then I wait for Otis to save me if he needs to. And it's, I'm like, watch this. I'm gonna go over and end group that guy right, right now. Come on, watch, I'm gonna go. And then, you know, you just find some common attribute, anything and start talking about it. And then suddenly you're in. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, or your religion, you're in. You, mm -hmm. we've, we've found something else that we can be an in-group on. And he hasn't had to save me yet. So. Although, although I'm ready. <laughs> the, the day will come and I'm ready. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I definitely resonate with what you're uh, saying here, uh, Katrina, because 
you know, I, I started this this podcast or doing this podcast because I really believe in, in well, it's being said by Ken Wilber, a philosopher I, I admire, you know, that everybody everybody's perspective is true but partial. So if you enter any situation or, or a conversation with that, then there is always uh, an opportunity to start a discussion, to, you know, to find a common ground. And if you start a dialogue that's, you know, that potentially you could end up in a situation where at, at the minimum you understand where you come from. So then you can tolerate <laughs> yes. each other. I, I think that's really important. I hope that conversations that I have with people like you and all the others, um, you know, show our listeners that, you know, it, it is possible to make small step towards a better world. Let me jump to a, a question that is related, but very at the same time also very different. Um, I, I really like music, so I always ask questions about music as well. So if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that, uh, you know, partially or completely embodies what you stand for, what you are about, what would that piece of music or song be? I have a genetic predisposition around uh, not remembering music lyrics or titles. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Gosh, you know, um, I would have to say, Hey Jude, you can't go wrong with Hey Jude. And, um, it's both timely, it's timeless and it's spiritual all at the same time. And, um, uh, I've constantly changed what I think Hey Jude is about. I've, uh, intentionally not read what the writer thinks it's about McCartney and Lennon think it's about, but I'd have to say, Hey Jude. And, and are there certain moments that you go to the song or, or uh, you just listen to it every day or are there? You know? Oh, you know, I, I don't listen to it every day. I, I have a station on Sirius XM and, and mm -hmm. when it comes, when it comes on, I always am just, you know, transfixed by that song and how timeless it is. organization exists 75 years is uh, celebrating 75 years of, of work help and hope um, but we're also looking at you know uh, at the past uh, to in, to improve our work and and one aspect uh, of the work is how did we do around racial justice and uh, could we have done better and you know in which situations that help us uh, in now and in the future you know you guys have worked a lot with the different uh, NGOs, faith-based organizations. Um, if you're asked to reflect on racial justice um, of the NGO sector, yeah, what's kind of your uh, scorecard for them? Failing. For us. Failing. Hmm. Failing. And part of that is that um, when you look at the nonprofit sector, we look very white, we look very female, mm -hmm. and then in the C-suite, we look very white and we look very male. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, been blessed with the opportunity to ignore the suffering of others, and we took that blessing. Um, you know, the statistics tell us everything that we need to know, but we didn't react. We didn't react. And um, I think the, the violence that we've seen in the last year or two have been the acts of desperate people who had nowhere else to turn. You know, we just didn't listen. We just didn't hear. We just didn't see. And when we did, 
acknowledged there is a problem, we installed programs that measured our efforts instead of the outcomes of our efforts, which meant we thought we'd done a good thing when we did 14 trainings in a year. We thought we'd done a good thing when we sent everybody collateral about um, uh, implicit bias. We thought we had done good things, but we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. It was, it was lip service. Uh, the outcomes weren't measured and weren't chased down in any meaningful way. Um, I think that one of the things I heard that was heartening is that St. Jude now has, St. Jude's Children's Hospital has a rule now that is very much more outcome-based. I uh, was mm -hmm. talking with Ted Braxton, who's in peer-to-peer -peer fundraising there, and he said that when they hire for a certain level position and up, they require that 43% of the applicant pool be diverse. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really great step in the right direction because you know it, it's not a requirement that 43% of the hires be diverse. They may have that too, I don't know. But I think the requirement that the applicant pool be, be diverse is, you know, will engender the right behaviors on our part to mm -hmm. find the right candidates and to change some of the requirements. Um, you know, some of the requirements eliminate um, diverse populations, years of experience, um, or years of education in something entirely unrelated to the nonprofit work trumps years of experience, hmm. right? So I could have a doctorate in something unrelated and have worked in a nonprofit for five years and the PhD will get hired rather than the person with experience, which is the only access point for diverse populations often. Hmm. Thoughts? Last year, the state of California passed a law that said that for-profit boards of directors had to have a certain number of women. Um, if mandating and making laws is the only way to make change in the uh, ethnic and gender uh, uh, makeup of nonprofit C-suites, then so be it. Uh, I'm, I'm all for affirmative action. And I think that... Uh, People's bias towards favoring people that look and sound like themselves and have the same backgrounds is just so pervasive and powerful that I think that these kind of policies need to be in place. Hmm. Thanks. Um, and and you know because you were I know you work with NGOs. So have you changed your way of working with them? And you know within this light or or. Uh... Oh, I consider myself having a failing grade as well. <laughs> so we are um, trying to be more conscious. In the last month, we've answered a couple of um, uh, requests for information, a request for a proposal. And the question mm -hmm. they asked that stumped us, frankly, was how will you, as you develop a new peer-to-peer -peer product, a new social fundraising product, how will you support our DEI initiatives? And I really had to stop and think about that. And, you know, when you get to the answer, after you turn over the question in your head, but so many times what you realize is, um, well, first, you're going to have to empower me with some authority so that hmm. I can control the messaging and the recruitment materials for um, for volunteers and for fundraisers and for donors. And I'm going to have to ask you to, um, if not give me authority, give me influence on who's staffing the event so that I can put some faces there that look like the faces we're trying to attract that look like a diverse population. And then, you know, the other part of it that's um, hard to manage is that often our mission population is, is diverse and our fundraising population is not. Um, so it's, it's a sticky one. It's, it's hard. It's hard. But, you know, it's hard, but we may be saying that 
in the absence of any sincere effort to tell us, is it really hard? I'm not really sure if it's hard because I haven't done it before. So I would count myself among those who have failed. We're almost at the end of our conversation. Um, I have one last question, and that is, yeah, any any last message, invitation, uh, request for the listeners from your side? I think uh, for me, as I look at the at the social fundraising industry that we serve, hmm. my request or my hope is that we don't let organizational knowledge kill us. You know, we are in a time of great transition, great change, and it's so comforting to go back to what was. It's so comforting to build new systems that look a lot like the old systems. And, you know, we're at a moment in time that that we could use this opportunity and make a great leap forward. But organizational knowledge that come from people my age can sometimes hold us back. You know, it's the it's the people who are living in 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 a different way now that will lead. And we have to put them in positions and empower them to the point that we can hear their ideas and not scoff at them and not push back on them. That would be my hope. What is well just to extend that a little bit, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that the peer-to-peer uh, fundraising world for decades since the 1980s with uh, Race for the Cure was organized around these events. And I think that one thing that COVID's done is it's shown us that it's not the event that really matters, it's the community. And we also know that the organizations that had built virtual communities before COVID hit did much better than people who had to start from scratch to build these virtual communities. So, you know, I think that, that out with the old idea that this is about an event and in with the new idea that this is about building communities uh, is really the, the way, the, the path forward uh, in the future and encompasses a lot of things yeah. that you talked about as well. And, you know, when you look at the younger generation and you look at their entertainment sources, they're all about community, discord, online gaming, uh, everything they do, Dungeons and Dragons still, amazingly, it's all about being part of a community, small or large. Um, that's what draws people. Great. I, I think those are great last words. I would like to to uh, thank you both for your time and your willingness to speak uh, with me and to share your knowledge and your being with uh, the listeners. So uh, good luck with everything you do. And thanks for that also. Thank you. Thank you know, you. we'll be boring at dinner because we've already talked about everything. <laughs> you know, with Maurice, <laughs> it's like, what are we going to talk about now? <laughs> Thank you, Maurice. I can send you the unedited recording so you can listen to it already. <laughs> oh, no, please not. Please don't. <laughs> Great. Thanks, guys. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on www.100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.